Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the very word of God. For those of you who are dreaming that we would read a book of the Bible together. Your dream just came true. Because um, we just did read a book of the Word together. It is a very small book at 335 Greek words. It is the third shortest book in the entire Bible and Paul's shortest letter. But it holds within it a topic that, has, that is highly sensitive, that has piqued the interest of people um, in the last few centuries and has been used both to defend and to oppose human slavery. Today's message is not intended to be a treatise of the subject of slavery, but to the extent time allows, I must address this issue head on, both in its context here in the letter, but also in our own Western heritage, which is laden with the scourge and evils of human enslavement. And to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. The fall affected every aspect of human relationships. We all have not only the ability, but the inclination to mess up everything. God ordained work and authority before the fall. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to work the earth, and to have dominion. So work and authority had been ordained before the fall. But after it, and in the hands of sinful humans, 
they became corrupted. Work became a god we worship. I know this pricks my own conscience, but especially here in the capitalistic West where how are you, we answer as busy because if we say anything else besides busy, we would be found going against the grain of our culture. We must be busy. We must be working all the time. So work became a god we worship and power became an idol by which we abuse others. We messed up relationships we've been given and power we've been entrusted with. In human hands, as Lord Acting says, power tends to corrupt. As wars developed, conquerors whose power prevailed would enslave those they conquered, making them work in their lands and homes, oftentimes indefinitely, without prospect of freedom. And they would also enslave their offspring, born into slavery, and then all your offspring stays indefinitely enslaved. On another hand, and in other cultures, those whose circumstances made them poor or indebted had the ability to pay their debts by lending themselves to those wealthier in order to be able to work and to survive. Because power tends to corrupt, those particular relationships were also corruptible. And all of this was afoot before the giving of the Old Testament law. Israel had already known the evils of slavery at the hand of the Egyptians before the, she was given the Torah. In a context where slavery was rampant, remember Israel had spent more than 400 years in slavery, the law came to guarantee rights for slaves to be treated fairly, to be paid properly, and to be able to buy their own freedom. The law also instituted what we know as the year of Jubilee, where all slaves might, must be set free at year 50. The law forbade that a Hebrew be mistreated by another Hebrew, even if one held power over the other. And even if Hebrews later had bond servants from the nations they conquered, they were commanded to treat them well. The Lord told them, remember how you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. And he told them not to mistreat others, remembering how they were freed themselves. But because power corrupts, it seems as if the year of Jubilee actually never took place and bondservants were never set free. Now, it's important for us to explain the words our Bible translations use. And the Bible uses three words, slave, servant, and bondservant. A slave was under absolute ownership by a master and had no legal rights whatsoever. These would be the Israelites under Pharaoh. And these would be also most slaves in the Greek or Roman world who would have otherwise been slaughtered had they not been made slaves when conquered. The rule was that when Rome conquered, either everyone died or they became slaves. There was no other option. And in fact, when in the year 70, Rome um, took over Jerusalem after the siege, it was thought that almost 97,000 were enslaved to Romans at that point in time. So this is what a slave meant. A servant was typically bound to another and had a wide range of freedoms. So for example, we read that Abraham had a chief servant who had authority over his entire house, and he even entrusted him to go and find a wife to his son. We also read that Gehazi pledged himself to Elisha as a servant, and Elisha had pledged himself to Elijah as a servant. 
A bondservant, which was the common word used in the New Testament, was bound to serve a master for a specific period of time, usually six to seven years. But that bondservant would also or could own property, achieve social advancement, and even purchase his freedom. This would be the case of Onesimus with Philemon. Bond servanthood was an option for people who became indebted to find work, food, and shelter while paying off debt. So people would pledge themselves to someone, work for six to seven years, have a place to stay, have food to eat, but also be paid, and could potentially have their freedom after six to seven years. So th there are many th things today that we may call differently that are similar to what this would be or this would have been a couple thousand years ago. And after those six to seven years, the bondservant could choose to either leave or stay indefinitely with the master. Now, to be clear, slavery in any sense of the term perverts God's created intention for human beings. So as we come to such passages, we have to understand that the Bible is not ordaining slavery because it often gets accused of it, nor is approving of it, but is rather giving radical instruction because it addresses slaves directly. In all of ancient history, slaves were not to be addressed directly. They were always to, we were always to address their masters, but the Bible actually addresses slaves directly, making them their own agents because they have dignity before God. It also addresses their masters regarding fair treatment, right wages, justice, freedom, and even brotherhood in this letter within a context that already allows slavery. During the Roman world of the New Testament, it is estimated that 90% of the population was under some sort of enslavement. So to go against the, that grain, for example, to issue an edict to remove slavery is almost saying, let's just stop work today or cancel all contracts. But all this neither excuses nor justifies the despicable practice of chattel racial slavery of mostly Africans to Europe and North America in the past few centuries. This was one of the darkest chapters of human history in which often those of lighter tone, skin tone, abused power and became corrupted in their minds and futile in their thinking as they raided villages, stole lives, lured people, kidnapped families, and took them against their will to live horrible lives in inhumane conditions with the sole purpose of serving self-appointed masters who would go on to enrich themselves at the expense of people they did not even consider of being human. And this was a natural outcome of Darwinian evolutionary theory. In fact, let me read to you Darwin's own words. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. By savage, he meant, um, he meant um, black people. At, at the same time, the anthropomorphous apes, that's what he called black people, will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will, for it will intervene between 
Man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, even than the Caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of as now between the Negro or Australian Aborigine and the gorilla. This is the evolutionary theory that is being taught everywhere today. The survival of the fittest means that people enslave others and grow in strength at their expense, and we see how that happened in the last few centuries. And if you need more reasons to oppose Darwinism or evolutionary theory, how about this horrid racism and utter disregard for the dignity of all peoples made in the image of God? The likes of Darwin argued for the inferiority of certain races, while the word of God itself argues to the equality of all peoples before God. But here also the, the following, or this horrifying fact, that many self-appointed masters and the ones who supported them misused the very word of God to submit their fellow humans. And it's shameful that many in the name of Christ dared to argue for slavery. I do not claim that they were all Christians. In fact, I would argue that many of them in reality were not. But it is factual that many true Christians have defended such slavery. And some might still even defend today's forms of slavery because, it's, because it still exists today in many different ways, including human trafficking, misuse of workers, especially in different parts of the Middle East and also in the sex industry. So as we come to Philemon today, the picture here is that of a wealthy man in one of the Roman provinces who employed people called bond servants who had a wide range of freedoms to work in his house and lands, providing them with pay, food, and shelter. The image should not be that of a 19th century white Southern American plantation owner who imprisoned black people as slaves to work his land, not providing them with the least amount of means to survive or conditions to thrive, let alone safety or dignity. So as we look at the letter together today, I want us to start with the context, since we're looking at a whole book. Philemon was a Greek convert who lived in the city of Colossae, which was about 100 miles east of the city of Ephesus, which would be around central Turkey today. Paul had ministered in Ephesus for three years, from the years 52 to the year 55 AD, where Philemon heard the gospel and was saved. Philemon then opened his home in Colossae for ministry. According to Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Epaphras, whom Paul mentions in his final greetings here, was the one who started the Colossian church, which met in Philemon's house. So as a wealthy citizen in the Roman Empire, Philemon had bondservants, one of whom was Onesimus. This Onesimus apparently stole something from Philemon, whether property or money, we're not sure, and then became a fugitive. And the easiest place for a fugitive in that day and age was to to hide was to go to a big city, and Rome was the largest one, so Rome became his destination. And God again showed his excellent orchestration of human events, and that while in Rome, Onesimus sought after Paul, whom he had either known personally or heard of while at Philemon's house, and he became a believer at the hands of Paul, who himself now was a prisoner in the year 60 AD. Onesimus befriended him, helped him, and tended to him there, becoming a very dear friend, a brother, and a child in Christ. Paul desired for Onesimus to be free, but also wanted Philemon 
and Onesimus to reconcile, no longer as master and bondservant, but as brothers in Christ, which is the reason for this letter. As the introduction shows us, Paul wrote this letter, helped by Timothy, while imprisoned in Rome. Ephia was probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus was probably his son that Paul mentions in the first three, the first three verses. Paul likely wrote the letter to the Colossian church at the same time since it met in Philemon's house. So Paul and Timothy write both letters, one to Philemon, one to Colossians, and then we know that from Colossians 4 that Paul sent Tychicus and Onesimus to Colossae to encourage them, and he probably gave them both letters, one to be delivered to Philemon and one to be delivered to the Colossian church. After this, Paul moves into what I would like us to maybe consider doing in our own church later on, what I call the ministry of refreshment. Paul had many reasons in verses 4 through 7 to overflow with thanksgiving for God's grace in Philemon's household. The Lord had built his church in the house, and the church's love and faith led people to seek after the faith and joy they saw. People knew them by their fruit. The gospel was being faithfully lived and proclaimed, which drives Paul to the petition in verse 6, where Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul wanted that the sharing of the faith would show to the watching world the excellencies of Christ that are being displayed through believers. I find this logic very similar to what Paul says in Colossians 1.24, filling up in the flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. Because the church hears of Christ but doesn't see some things on display except to our faith and how we love one another. Our faith our gospel, and our lives display to us, to one another, and to the world that watches us in tangible ways what they may not otherwise see or perceive from the love of God, the gifts of the Spirit, and all the one anothering that we have been entrusted with. If we keep our true faith hidden, none of this will be made manifest. But true faith should never be kept hidden because the word tells us that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and a city on a hill. And, and Paul follows this with a wonderful testimony with a commendation in verse 7. I want you to, to just hear this and let it sit on you. I have derived much joy and comfort from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed you. Do you hear the ministry of refreshment? The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I saw this personally this last week while seeing the hearts of the saints being refreshed by the faith of, of many people in my own country, but also seeing people give of their own self to refresh the hearts of others even here among us. Philemon's love for believers must be celebrated because it refreshed the hearts of the saints. 
we hear from Romans 5, verse 5, that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this comes to mind. When God's love has been poured into our hearts, love must be, love is not in a vacuum. Love must be given to another so that it would be truly love. We cannot love people in a vacuum. The Holy Spirit has filled us and given us a ministry of refreshing the hearts of one another in the body of Christ. So that Christ might be exalted and lifted up. And so that our testimony of effective faith at work and of a credible gospel community would be seen by the world around us. Who would be convicted by this knowledge to seek after the one true Savior. This one true Savior is the only one who can grant us faith that gives eternal life. Brothers and sisters, I want us to be known as people who refresh the hearts of the saints among us. We talk of credible gospel community, and I want to argue that we are not truly doing a credible gospel community. Yes, we are in certain ways when we share our burdens with one another. But as we hold back of sharing our own burdens, I think we rob other people of the blessing of having the ministry of refreshment to refresh the hearts of the saints in Christ Jesus. So don't hold back. In the family of Christ, we, we all have families, and families are tough because we hurt one another. And if you want to protect your heart, don't give it to anyone. Just envelop it, lock it, and keep it to yourself and come to church and go home and don't go to mission or family. Don't welcome anyone in, in your house. Don't you ever dare to give your heart to another because it might be broken or you might get a wound. The word of God tells us that God has saved us by the gospel into a community. So you want to be alone? Go ahead, protect your heart. But if you want your heart to be refreshed, and if you want to have this ministry of refreshment to refresh the hearts of others, dare open your heart to another. Dare being hurt. Dare having a scar. And maybe, just maybe, one of the saints in this body of Christ might refresh your heart in Christ Jesus and might show to you and to others that God is truly among us and the Spirit has been truly poured into our, our hearts and the love of God overflows from it. So after this, Paul begins the core of his message of pleading with his friend Philemon for his dear child Onesimus. And what we find is a beautiful treatise of how the gospel transforms lives, restores relationships, breaks down barriers, defies cultural notions of hierarchy and distinction, even undermining flawed human institutions like slavery, uniting peoples into Christ. In doing this, Paul uses persuasive logic that if there's a lawyer here among us today, might object by saying, yes, he was leading Philemon. But I find the arguments of Paul to be very logical 
persuasive, and kind, focusing on four things, appeal, divine ordinance, forgiveness, and generosity. And we're going to look at these four things together. The first argument is the power of appeal over command, which we see in verses 8 through 14. Paul does not use his status as a father in the faith, a more mature believer or an apostle to issue a commandment. Unlike in his simultaneous letter to the Colossian church where he identifies as an apostle, he calls himself here a, pri a prisoner for the gospel, assuming a position of loneliness. In his weakness, he finds strength in having come to know the love of God, and he knows the same of Philemon. He prefers to issue an appeal on behalf of one whose sins have been washed by the blood of the same Lord who redeemed all three of them from death to life. The debt of love is deep, and love transforms people. How much more does the perfect love of God transform sinners? Paul is certain of such a transformation and the power of its appeal that he is willing to send back the once fugitive, now turned believer Onesimus to his previous master. What a great description of redemption in the life of Onesimus. His name in Greek meant useful, but he became useless. But the gospel renewed him into truth and usefulness for ministry, even more than anyone thought. He has indeed become so dear to Paul that he calls him his very heart. In the original language, it means part of my liver. His very heart. What a tender picture of fatherly love. One that I think we ourselves should have toward those we nurture in the faith. Do we see one another as we disciple one another as our very heart that God has entrusted us with? And as a highly respected apostle, Paul could have kept Onesimus with him as a friend and as a helper. But he's so confident in the spirit that Philemon will heed his appeal that he, could, he, he wanted to send him back. He is appealing to his affection as a spiritual son, to his wisdom as a church leader, to his care as a brother, and to the renewed mind he now has in Christ. One that they all three share together. All of them have been redeemed and renewed by the same Savior. The unique thing about new life in Christ, about Christian transformation, about true faith, is that faith and sanctification change our character. Faith not only changes what we do. I said in the beginning that we have the inclination to mess up everything. Right? And hear this. Faith does not only change what we do, but what we desire to do. In Christ, you have new desires. You have the ability not to sin. Sin has no more mastery over you. In Christ, you have been set free to walk in the freedom of the light of the children of God. I want that to come over you today and think to yourself that I walk in freedom in Christ Jesus in the Spirit. Sin has no more dominion over me. We sang the power of the cross. The, if we believe the power of the cross, we trust that Christ has changed every grain of our being. Your DNA has been changed to be like that of the children of God. We are not worshiping someone who is aloof from us. We have a man who sits on the throne. Christ, who is truly man, has walked in your shoes, 
has been tempted in every way yet without sin and has conquered by the power that he has been given through the Holy Spirit, has been raised from the dead to newness of life so that we may walk with him. No more slaves to sin. We are now free to live as children of God. If that doesn't cut you to your heart and gives you hope and joy, I don't know what else would. Go home today and say, all this that I heard doesn't matter. But if it does, go home today and say, Christ is truly among us. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And I'm preaching this to my own heart before I do that to you today. Christ does not only change what we do, but what we desire to do. Your desires are no longer captive to the evil one. You have been set free, brother and sister. Your chains are gone. The power of the cross is stronger than anything that can come between you and walking in the light. You know, the world will anchor on your sins, on your tweets, on your Facebook posts. It's like going to a high school reunion where people treat you the same, the same way you were 23 years ago. But that does, that's not what Christ does. Christ looks at you through the blood that has been shed for you. And he delights over you. In my prayer earlier, I quoted Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord exalts over you with a loud song. That's a sermon on its own. The God of this universe is singing over you, his child. And we have the assurance by the Holy Spirit that we belong to him, and that nothing can separate us from his love. So we are no longer useless because we have been transformed. We are useful, and so is Onesimus. He is no longer a thief, but a faithful steward, no longer a fugitive, but a courageous companion. And his sins are no more. The second argument is the divine ordinance. Paul, in verses 15 and 16, Paul had authority to command, but he preferred that Philemon consents to willfully emancipate Onesimus, asking him to treat him well, to take him in as a beloved brother, and to receive him as one would receive Paul himself. This is the power of the gospel to transform relationships. Though the departure was painful and treacherous, it revealed to both Onesimus and to Philemon that Christ was supreme in salvation and reconciliation. Paul says this in, in the two verses that he sees God having orchestrated this. He says, how much more so that he may restore to you not only as a bond, not as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. What a testimony this would be that the Roman culture that was around them would allow Philemon to severely punish Onesimus, but now he would take him in as a brother, putting a nail in the coffin of human servitude. Paul's thir third argument is forgiveness and justice from verses 17 to 20. It is also a logic that disarms Philemon. 
he could have asked him to forget the debt. After all, and if we're being honest with ourselves, this is a very common approach many believers take when dealing with one another, especially when we owe others. And even more when one had been unkind or even abusive toward others. We can see this in what happened in, in churches or conventions in the past few years. For some reason, many Christians suddenly seem to forget the need for justice when payment is required. But we who have been forgiven much by the blood of the eternal covenant should be the first to seek to do justice and pay what is due. Because when we realize the depth of our indebtedness to Jesus Christ who saved us, we will find any other debt owed to us in comparison to be the smallest of drops and the biggest of oceans. The one who has been forgiven, the one who truly understands forgiveness, who truly gets what it means to have life in Christ, will also be ready to receive a genuinely repentant believer. If we do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will our Father forgive us ours. And hear this. Christ does not forgive us against or despite justice, but through justice that was exercised upon him on the cross where he paid for our sins. And Paul here teaches us a better way. He does not tell Philemon to just forget the debt. But he tells him to transfer to Paul's account. Justice is being served. Philemon's rights will not be washed under a rug. Paul, who was a proponent of right and justice, pledged that he would repay him in full. He even signs the letter himself, which was a legally binding contract. Even though he was imprisoned, he still had means to be true to his promises. And the truth is, he reminds Philemon that even Philemon owns him his own life because Philemon had come to know Christ at Paul's hands. But still, Paul says, I will repay you, even if you owe me your own self. I will repay you. He was the father to both Philemon and Onesimus, which my mind loves to think about is that this is also another way that they have entered into a brotherly relationship because Paul had led both of them to Christ, fathered them in the faith. So they are brothers under Paul, but also in Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. In Christ, both slave and slave owner belong to him and are owned by him. And the last argument was confidence of generosity in verses 21 and 22. Paul is not only confident that Philemon will hear him out and do all that he had asked him, but that he will outdo any demand of his and even be kinder and more welcoming to Onesimus than one would anticipate. He already mentioned that earlier, but he reminds us here that Philemon had a reputation of generosity and beneficence. After all, the church met at his house. And his hospitality was surely famous. But how much more these virtues would be magnified were he to welcome back a runaway servant who stole from him to take him in as a brother, to treat him with a holy kiss, to give him a seat at the table, to dip morsels in the same plate with him, and to honor him like one of the apostles. This goes against all the grains of the culture back then and even today. 
Paul, Philemon, and we know that this generosity will be effective to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Takes us back to verse 6. It's one of the marks of the genuineness of the Christian faith. Believers are known by their joy, their hope, and their forgiveness, their generosity, their love for one another, their care for the destitute, their beautiful relationships that tell the world that we seek a city that is eternal, not the kingdoms or the promises of this world. And Paul underlines his final argument at the end of verse 20 when he goes back to what he had already celebrated in Philemon, the ministry of refreshment. He refreshed the hearts of the saints by his love. Paul asked him to generously extend this refresh refreshment once more to Paul's heart by welcoming his very own heart, Onesimus, to refresh him in a new relationship of brotherhood where union with Christ and unity in him are on full display for the watching world to see how Christ came to reconcile all things to himself by the power of his blood. Now, what is the result of all this? It is radical transformation. It, this small letter is an explosive evidence of the gospel's power to transform any relationship and to undermine man-made problematic institutions. Throughout human history, including today, relationships have often devolved into commerce. The pragmatist, maybe some of us, ask, what can I get out of this? After all, this was the premise of Karl Marx's theory and all his writings. And this was quintessentially demonstrated in chattel slavery. What can I get out of this? What benefit is there for me? But we see here that the new relationship between Philemon and Onesimus is one of love, not one of commerce. It's not based on personal interest. After all, in Christ, we are commanded to seek the interests of others and to radically do that, considering them better than ourselves. I wonder how many of us do that as Philippians 2 calls us to do it consider others better than ourselves. I wonder how many of us believe that we should do that. And guess what? This new relationship is not temporary. It will last forever. What we do to and with one another will echo, will have repercussions into eternity. In Christ, in the new creation, in the one body we are members of, brotherhood and sisterhood supersede any other type of relationship. In the new heavens, there won't be any slaves or slave owners. In the new heavens, there won't be any, ma any marriages, but we'll all be brothers and sisters. That is the relationship that will endure to eternity. Paul wrote at the same time in, in the letter to the Colossians, there is no Greek or Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. In Christ, brotherhood supersedes slavery. This New Testament promise shatters all expectation. Once we are free from sin, we are called slaves to God. 
And as brothers and sisters, we are commanded to serve one another, which means to be enslaved to one another. Think of this in a, in a context where 90% of the population were in some sort of bond servanthood or slavery, that Paul is sending, the whole New Testament is writing that we are now slaves of God and we are to be enslaved to one another. How much more radical of a manifesto do you want the New Testament to say to the culture in which it was written? In the new creation that we already are, right? If anyone is in Christ, we are a new creation. And the new creation has already broken through to where we live. Not fully consummated, but it's already here. How radical would it be that we are known by our service for one another? by our unity, by our kindness, by our generosity, and by our love for one another. I wonder if the news around us or the culture would know us by our love for one another, not by why we hate, not, but, not by what we don't do, how much of a radical testimony that would be to the culture around us. Are we ready to suffer for Christ? Are we ready to lose an election for Christ? Put your hopes in another president or a senator and see your hopes being shattered. Put your hope in Christ and your hope will become your reality. This is the call Christ gave us as the community of faith. The world around us talks of individualism and preaches isolation. It's all about you. Autonomy, be a law unto yourself. Have it your way. Go do your thing. Live alone, be lonely, as long as you do you, right? Yeah. Hell is filled by people who do you. Heaven is filled by people who love one another. Saved by Christ. Christ talks of community, and he preaches unity. Individualism will never find its satisfaction on its own, only its destruction and devolution into apathy. But in Christ, every individual will find life, peace, hope, and, and joy in the community of faith because the gospel is the power of God for salvation and transformation of every relationship to the glory of God and for every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I know I'm out of time, but I have a few thoughts, final thoughts on the Bible and emancipation. The Bible is often at the receiving end of criticism regarding slavery. It never ordained slavery. And if people used it to defend slavery, let them be anathema. If Jesus or Paul had issued a declaration to end slavery in their days, it would have been seen as a political revolution meant to upend society. And I, I doubt it would have achieved much. In a similar way that if I issue a declaration today to end all sports or all work agreements, people would look at me as if I'm crazy. But within the understanding of God's purposes in progressive revelation to all historical human context, it was even more revolutionary for the Word of God to call for unity and brotherhood between believers from all backgrounds and start there 
and then change the face of the earth. Can you see how radical Paul's words are to Philemon? He is directly undermining the despicable human institution of slavery, and if, in fact, he is dissolving it to be replaced by brotherhood. And throughout history, true believers led the fight against slavery, succeeded in defeating it, and continue to do so today, because the message of freedom is at the core of the Bible. Freedom from slavery to sin and from the dominion of death, which translates into new relationships in Christ, where there's unity and diversity, where we are enslaved to one another and we are servants of God. The Bible privileges those without privilege and honors those without honor. He gives us seats of honor with him. There's nothing in the Bible that argues to the inferiority or superiority of one race over another, but rather a radical transformation of every relationship to portray the glory of God as we love one another and outdo one another in honor. I believe that if we look back at all of human history, we will be able to perceive all the threads that God has weaved, sometimes against what people intended, to show forth his purposes, not only in creation, but in redemption, sanctification, and ultimately in glorification, making all things new, and at the center of it all, Jesus Christ himself, who did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, and taking on human nature, coming himself in the form of a servant, and dying the death of a thief on the cross, then raised again from the dead to usher the new covenant, where there is no Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female, no slave or free, but all are one in Christ, and Christ is Lord over all. Slavery is incompatible with the gospel. To walk in the gospel, in truth and in love, is to walk away from slavery. Let this mark of the new covenant be our trumpet call to love one another as Christ has loved us. Let us pray. Father, as we meditated on these words today, my heart says, amazing love. How can it be that Christ, our Lord, would die for us? I imagine if Christ asked, what's in it for me? What would the outcome be? But Christ wanted God to be glorified, and he pursued us and gave himself up for us. Amazing love, how can it be that Christ would die for me to save us from our bondage to sin and to have us walk into the freedom of the children of God? We thank you for the blood of the new covenant that has been given to us as a guarantee of where we stand. God, our hearts break as we look back and see the effects of human enslavement. And our hearts break as we pray today that you would put an end to all forms of, of slavery that are still rampant in many parts of the world today. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, and put an end to sin and destruction, and death. But until that day comes, O oh God, you have given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that we would call people to be reconciled to God. You have, called, you have given us the ministry of refreshment to refresh the hearts of the saints in Christ Jesus. Oh, God, cut us to the heart so that we may do that by the power of the Spirit that is in us. If we lean on our own power, we can do it. But if we truly believe that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, we can do it. And you have also given us the ministry of freedom, to proclaim freedom to the captives and to pr proclaim good news. You have also, as you have equipped people throughout the past centuries to put an end to slavery, you have also called us today to continue the fight for justice and reconciliation. Because in the new kingdom and in our union with Christ, by the power that has been given to us, by the Holy Spirit, by, by the Christ that leads us, by the banner that is before us, we are stronger than he who is, who is against us. So, Father, renew in our hearts and our mind today a desire to worship you, to refresh one another, to believe the gospel once again, and to walk in the freedom of the children of God so that Christ would be glorified in us and so that joy would be central in our lives and so that union would be the mark that we are known by and so that love would be supreme in our midst, the love of God that has been given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.